Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, picking up where you were last week. Anybody remember the sermon from last week? Seven, got you. That's why we do what we do, man. That's why we do what we do, so you can, people can forget. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, I'll just put it in our hearing again. God blesses those who are humble. Your translation may say meek, for they will inherit the whole earth. Um, if you would like a title for our time together, it's simply this, the power of the blood. The power of the blood. Today, we're, we've been walking through the Beatitudes, and uh, you've been walking through those as well. And the Beatitudes is a really interesting part of Scripture. It's actually the, the first joint series that Radiant Church and Grace City are doing together. And so um, this morning, uh, Radiant Church was preaching on this exact same passage. And so one of the reasons why this is one of the first things we decided to do together, because the Beatitudes is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is really a kingdom orientation for the Christian. How many people have ever been to like a new job orientation on the first day, right? Cool. <laughs> How many people have been doing the orientation? Like you're the one leading it. Don't you just hate everybody there? <laughs> There's something about like being asked to teach people how to do their job that just like infuriates me. And I'm like, I hope you all quit. Um, <laughs> but y'all are more holy than me. So y'all don't struggle with that. Um, y'all want to see people win. Um, so if you've ever gone through an orientation, although it's kind of, oh, man, I get it, kind of going through this big manual, it's really important because you may have worked in a company like this, but this is how we do things here, right? This is what we mean when we say this. These are the expectations. These are the procedures. It's to orient you to where you are and help you to leave where you were. The Beatitudes are a kingdom orientation for the Christian. Um, I was about 20 years old when I, when I became a believer, rounding up a little bit, um, and I was pretty good at being an unbeliever. Like, I was pretty good at it, if I had to say so myself. I knew very well how to prioritize myself, how to live for pleasure and comfort, how to dismiss people who got in my way. I was well-versed in the tools of the trade of living as an unbeliever. And then all of a sudden, God captured my heart and opened my eyes, and I gave my life to him. But how many people know that old habits don't just die immediately? You've got some rhythms and some practices and some beliefs that you have cultivated over a life of living as a heathen. And now all of a sudden, you're playing on Jesus' team, but you still know the old team's plays. The Sermon on the Mount helps us all to orient ourselves to how the kingdom actually works. God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him, verse 3 says. Pastor Will Plunk, uh, preached on that message talking about, <laughs> come on, we need to be okay with accepting spiritual food stamps. Y'all remember that? He's crazy for that, y'all. But this idea of embracing spiritual poverty so that we can receive the riches of heaven. That is counterculture. That's not what you learned in this world. Most of us have been taught, don't let anybody see that you're weak. Don't let anybody know that you're in need. Don't let anybody see that you don't have it all together. And the Beatitudes are here to reorient our thinking and our lives. 
And so we find ourselves in verse 5 talking about humility. Now, before I dive into the text, I feel like I need to do a little bit of work because sometimes, maybe not you, but me, sometimes when I read the Bible, I don't take it seriously. Anybody ever do that? You just kind of read the Bible, and what you do is you turn it into a platitude, right? God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, cool, I should be humble. That's a Christian thing to do. But when you take the Bible seriously, you realize that it wrecks your life. Let me give you another example. How many people know just offhand what Ephesians 4.32 says? Anybody? Oh, there was somebody. Oh, you were here at first service. <laughs> but he does know. All right, I'll take it from him. I'll take it from him. <laughs> He knew it because he's a Bible scholar, y'all. He preaches the word. Uh, <laughs> Ephesians 4.32, for the rest of us who haven't memorized the New Testament, simply says that we are to forgive others the way God in Christ forgave us. Now, you might be tempted to say, okay, cool, Christians should forgive others. That's not what it said, though. What did it say? It said, the Bible, said our standard for forgiveness is how God forgave us. So God didn't say forgive others. He said forgive others the way I forgave you. That'll wreck your life, y'all. Let me show you how. Because how did God forgive you? He forgave you before you were sorry. <laughs> I done lost some of y'all right now. Because <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all don't y'all won't forgive that person until they even acknowledge what they did. That's not how God forgave you, though. You still don't know how bad your sin was. Today, you still don't know what God really forgave you of. God forgave you before you were sorry. God forgave you so completely, it's as if it never happened. Not only did y'all go from negative to neutral, like, man, we, we used to be beefing, but now we cool. No, like, we used to be beefing, now he lives with me. He forgives you so totally, it's as if the betrayal, the breach had never happened. Try and forgive other people like that. Just try. That's just one verse out of a couple more thousand in the New Testament. That if we took it seriously, it would rightly wreck our lives. And so the Beatitudes are filled with nice-sounding, hallmark, call-type language that we will be tempted to not take as seriously as what he's saying. And so before I dive into verse 5, I want to make sure that we are all in a posture to hear clearly what the Word of God is saying Knowing that if we hear it rightly, when we leave this place, our lives have to be different. Amen? Amen. All right, let's dive in. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Or meek or humble, same word. What does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to be humble? I would posit that most of us don't actually know what biblical humility means. When we think of humble, you may think of someone who is soft-spoken. You may think of someone who is not braggadocious or arrogant or loud. And all those things are parts of it. But here's what a passage of scripture that I was reading um, let me know that I don't know what the Bible means when it says humble. Why? Because Numbers chapter 12. Anybody read it? It's all right. Numbers chapter 12. I'll recap it for you. I know you did. You just forgot a long time ago. Uh, Numbers chapter 12, Moses and Miriam were kind of beefing around some, some decisions that Moses made. Um, and they were, Miriam and, and Aaron were accusing Moses of some stuff. Now, mind you, we know the book of Numbers was written by Moses, right? We know that? Cool. So, so Moses is actually recounting this event himself. 
And in Numbers chapter 12, it says, now Moses was humble, more humble than anyone else on earth. (laughs) You can go look it up, Numbers chapter 12, it's in there. And it's basically saying that he didn't fight back, that the Lord avenged him later. That's when, you know, Moses had the, uh, Aaron had the the leprosy thing, and that's when they chastised him for talking against the servant of God. But right in there in the middle is this passage that says, Moses was the most humble man on earth. Now, y'all, if I said, hey, I'm going to talk about humility today, and I'm going to use my life as an example, because I'm the most humble person in the room, like, that probably disqualify me in your mind, right? But it's literally in the Bible that Moses is like, no, I'm, I got this hum- humility thing. Like, I'm killing it. You know what I'm saying? So that let me know, man, I probably don't think, I probably don't understand humility like the Bible understands humility. Because it's not just a, a self-defacing posture. Spurgeon said it like this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So it doesn't diminish the way that God made you. It doesn't diminish the things that you're great at, the things that you can contribute to this world. It just means that the things that I've done and I've accomplished and the resources that I have are not the source of my identity. They're not who I am. They're just what I have. And so here I want to expand our understanding of humility because I think we need to ground it more in the scriptures as saying more than a personality trait. Most scholars believe, and I would agree, that Jesus here is quoting Psalms 37 in Matthew chapter 5. So flip over to Psalms 37 really quickly. We're going to come back. But flip over to Psalms 37. I don't hear no Bibles turning. Flip over to Psalms 37. I want y'all to see it. It's not going to be on the screen. The reason why Jesus is able to say such a big, bold statement, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That exact same word is what's found in Deuteronomy when the Israelites would take possession of the land. The reason why he was saying such a big thing that, hey, the humble people get everything is what he's saying. The reason why he's able to say that and move on is because he's talking to people who would be familiar with the Old Testament passages, such as Psalms 37, which was seen as a messianic psalm in Jesus' day, or a psalm that points to the coming of the Messiah. Look at verse 11, and then we're going to work our way backwards. See if this sounds familiar to you. The lowly or humble will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. That sound familiar so far? This is the very words that Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And this is what he's referencing. And so I believe in chapter 37 of Psalms, we get a more robust understanding of what biblical humility is. Are y'all ready to go on this trek with me? Let me start at verses 1 in chapter 37. Don't envy or don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. If we were to stop right there and just use the first two verses of Psalms 37, who could you deduce are the, the, the hearers of this original psalm? What was happening to them that prompted the psalmist to write Psalms 37? Just looking at the first two verses. What are they worried about? They're worried about the wicked winning, right? They're like, man, this prayer and this fasting stuff ain't working. Our, our country is going down the drain. Those who hate God seem to be winning. Those who love God seem to be losing. Sound familiar to our time? 
So in this context of fear and worry, he unpacks what humility really is. In verse 3, it begins with, trust in the Lord and do good. Verse 4 says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. Verse 5. Verse 7 says, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. And verse 8 says, stop being angry. Turn from your rage. It almost feels like he just threw verse 8 in there. It's like a, that wasn't in my notes, but here, stop being angry. Like everything else had kind of a flow to it. And he's like, man, just stop being angry. Like just stop being mad. Like relax. I believe verse chapter 37 of Psalms gives us a more robust and biblical definition of what humility really means. Because humility isn't soft-spokenness. It's not a personality trait. It's a posture of your life. Y'all remember how we started the Beatitudes in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's the difference between being poor in spirit and being meek or lowly or humble? They're two different Beatitudes. What's the difference between those two? One difference could be that being poor in spirit is a condition that you are already in. You just need to recognize it. That's exactly what Pastor Will said. You don't choose to be poor in spirit. You are poor in spirit. You do need God to rescue you, to save you, and to sustain you. That is an ever-present truth of your life. It's just a condition of your being. Humility is not a condition. It's a choice. This isn't something that will happen on its own. This is something that you must fight for to be humble before your God. So what does it mean? Let's look at it. He starts with trust in the Lord and do good. This one is a hard one for us, y'all. Because if we're honest, we don't really have to trust in the Lord until things get really bad. Right? Somebody gets sick, pop them a little therapy, a little ginger ale, go to nap, go take, take a nap, you're fine. Right? Planning for retirement, you've got the 401k, you've got the Roth, you've got the, the company benefit match. Most of our lives, we have just taken ownership of and we are taking care of. There's an old story about uh, deacons trying to raise money to buy a building. And they had tried to do this fundraiser and giving campaign. And for months and months and months, they were not missing any of their goals and deadlines. And finally, they were in danger of losing the building. And the deacons at a meeting just threw up his hands and said, man, we've tried everything. I guess now it's just a time to pray. It's funny. Because we do it too. Like, we only pray when we ain't got nothing else to do. I've tried, I've called all my connections, I've called all my friends, I've made ask for every favor that I could, and I'm out of options, so man, God, you're just going to have to do something. Trusting in this Lord, this posture of dependency on God's activity in our lives is not something that comes natural nor easy for us, and yet it's the first thing to be humble, truly, to God. It's not God, I got it, I'll let you know if I need help. It's God, I, I think I can do something here, but I'm going to trust you first. I'm, I'm going to ask you what you think first, which is actually committed, uh, which is connected to one of the other principles that we'll see in a second. But look at verse 4, the second principle. After trusting in the Lord, what does it say? Take delight in the Lord. Now, this one's a hard one because you can't make yourself like something. And delight doesn't mean anything spiritual or fancy. It means you enjoy this. 
to enjoy the Lord. How can you enjoy the How can you change that which you like? My, my wife watches these really random, like, uh, cooking shows. Like, she loves these British baking shows. And <laughs> They're so passionate. <laughs> All right. I said the first service. I'll say it again. I, I owe her an apology because when I saw her watching, I was like, nobody else in the world watches this but you. But apparently I was wrong. So we have, we have some fans in the audience. And so she's like, hey, we should spend some more time together. I'm like, cool, let's do it. And so, but when, when wives say that, they mean do what, I, what I'm doing, right? So... I cool. I know what that. I know what this about. So we're downstairs watching British baking shows together, right? Um, and sometimes they be a little fun. I ain't gonna lie. Uh, but usually uh, we're just watching, and enjoying it. But here's where I'm, y'all ready, married folks? Y'all ready for a pro tip? Here's where my wife messes up. She looks over and says, "Hey, are you having fun?" <laughs> Wives, don't do that. If he's there, let him be there. No, he's not having fun but he's there because he loves you, right? So don't mess it up. Just enjoy it. So she looks over. She's like, no, are you having fun? I'm like, no, I'm not having fun. Like, it's, you know, I'm just doing the thing, right? So she thinks it's, oh, because you don't understand. So let me explain to you what's happening. Let me talk about this judge and this person's backstory and that person didn't grow up with a mom. Like, it's all these sob stories or whatever. And I, I tell her, like, it's not my ignorance of what's happening that's stopping me enjoying it. That's not the problem. I just don't enjoy this. And so, I mean, I can't change it. All I can do is participate in it, right? <laughs> I just set some married folks free just now. Yeah, so my husband's like fist bumping like, yes. Just don't ask. Just enjoy it, right? He's not, he doesn't like shopping with you. He just goes because he likes you. Amen. Um, so, how do, <laughs> so how do we change what we delight in? If one of the principles of, of walking with God humbly is to take delight in the Lord, how do we do that if we can't change what we like? Let me give you two things to consider when it talks about taking delight in the Lord. One, I'm just going to say this and move on. If all of Christianity is boring to you, you're probably not a believer. Let me just put that out there. If reading the Bible is boring to you, singing is boring to you, church is boring to you, community is boring to you. If all of the things that make a believer a believer are boring to you, you're probably not saved. Like that's it. But I got good news for you. Somebody asked, what's the good news? Thank you so much for asking. The good news is that's not a life sentence of being separated from God. You can change that today. You don't have to wait. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't got to do nothing different. All you need to know is that, to, that you need a Savior. And once you know that you need a Savior, a Savior, a Savior is available to you. But let's just be real. If all of the Christian life is just drudgery, if you're only here on a Sunday morning because you just want peace at the home and you're tired of fighting about it, if every time you read the scriptures it's just drudgery, I'm not saying it's not disciplined sometimes, but if it's always just discipline, if it's always just drudgery, if it's always just boredom, you may not actually know Jesus. Because one of the first things Jesus does when you meet him is he transforms you. Becoming a Christian is not a behavior improvement program. It is coming out of a grave dead in your sins to life in Jesus Christ. And so God didn't just sprinkle a little morality into your life 
you were dead and now you're not. And if you haven't experienced that drastic of a transformation, maybe God's not done working in your heart just yet. But for those who are believers, how can we take delight in the Lord consistently? Because I'm going to be honest, I, I do this for a living, and not every time I open the Bible is it exciting. Not every time I show up on a Sunday morning am I thrilled to be there. More often than not, it is true, but our hearts are weird. Sometimes the things that we love, we don't like. So how can we take delight in the Lord? Let me give you a principle here. You take delight in the Lord by doing more of the things that you struggle to delight in. You, you struggle to read the Bible. The answer to that is actually reading the Bible more. Y'all was waiting on, like, the, the shortcut. <laughs> Y'all was like, oh, he's going to give me the pill to, like, love Jesus. <laughs> There's no pill. It's just wake up and say, God, I'm here. Meet me. And do that every day until God meets you. You struggling with church? The answer to church hurt and church drudgery is actually more church. Some of y'all struggle to be here, and the antidote is you need to sign up to serve so that you're here for a longer period of time. Y'all. Thank you, Pastor Will. Thank you. Y'all, I, I got saved a little bit later in life. I had all kinds of issues with the church. Ain't nothing but hypocrites. Ain't nobody. Everybody's pretending. Everybody's fake. You know what I'm saying? Mom and dad's cussing themselves out in the car. Get out the car. Tell them, hey, sister. Like, like I, was, I was done, bro. Then I got saved, and I, I wanted to love this thing because God loves this thing. But I don't love this thing. Y'all, what helped me heal from my really judgmental view of church people was church people. That's what helped me heal. And I realized, oh, not everybody's like this. Oh, there's some folks really going after this thing. Oh, there's some folks who really, they ain't perfect, but they trying. There's some folks who are not pretending. And your your church hurt wound isn't going to be healed until it gets healed through the church. So if you're struggling to be here, be here more. Be here more. You're struggling to pray. You don't know what to say. You feel like your prayers are short. You hear other people pray, and you're like, man, I I don't know how to do that. The answer is to pray more. Because here's what we can't do, y'all. We can't just reconfigure our relationship with God. Oh, you know what? I'm just a kind of a walk on the beach and sing type of Christian. That's how me and God connect. No, you don't. That's not true. I just like being out in nature with God. Me and the Bible is, you know, it's just, I don't, I'm not a reader. You know, I just like to just be and experience God. No, you don't. You may feel that way, but you unilaterally cannot reconfigure the, the confines of the covenant relationship. You can't then decide how you and God are going to relate when God has already decided. I can't just tell my wife, you know what, I'm not really a stay every night at the house type of husband. Like, Sometimes I just like to be out, you know, like, that don't really work for me. Like, that would be ridiculous. But that's how many of us approach our relationship with God. I don't really like that, but I do like this, I'm going to do that. It's not a buffet. These are the disciplines and the means of mercy and grace for God to conform us to the image of his son. And so if we are going to take the light in the Lord, we have to take the Lord as he is, not as how we reconfigure him to be. Amen? So if you're struggling in something, chase it. it. 
You're struggling with prayer, chase prayer. You're struggling with reading, chase Bible reading. You're struggling with community, do community more. You're struggling with Sunday morning service, get a serving team that gets you here early and makes you stay late. Because only by being exposed to the means of grace does it have a chance to change our hearts and our affections so that we can delight in these things more consistently. Amen? Trust in the Lord. Take delight in the Lord. Commit everything, verse 5, that you do to the Lord. To be humble is to say, God, you get a say in my life first. Committing everything you do to the Lord just means God gets a say pre-decision. Hear me clear. God gets a say pre-decision. Now, I know how y'all Christians do. Y'all don't say that you've made up your mind. You say you're still listening to counsel, but in your heart, you've already decided what you're going to do. You've already decided you're going to date that person no matter what other people say. You've already decided you're going to buy that house. You've already decided you're going to take the job. You've already decided, but you're just talking to enough people so that you can crowdsource enough affirmation so that you can stamp Jesus' approval on the decision that you've already made. Y'all ain't never done this before? Y'all looking real holy and sanctified in these seats. Like, y'all don't do this. I'm a pastor. I didn't seen the meetings. Hey, pastor, I'm just thinking about doing this thing. I can see on your face you've already made up your mind. But now we got to play this game like you haven't. And I got to give you some verses and pray for you just to have you come back and tell me to do the thing you already decided to do. Like, I've done this game with y'all. Committing your way to the Lord says, God, here's my singleness. Here's this person here. What do you want to do with it, God? God, here's this need for a new home. Here's this resources that I have. And I know the school districts and I know where I want to go, but God, you may need a missionary in a neighborhood somewhere. You may need the light of the gospel planted somewhere, and my kid may have to go to a worse school. Committing your way to the Lord says, God, you get to save before I've decided in my heart. And God may give you the desires of your heart, or he may not. That's the benefit of being God. But the reason the promise says if you commit your way to the Lord, that he will give you desires of your heart, in verse 4, if you take delight in the Lord, slowly but surely what we want is also what God wants too. And now we ain't pushing and pulling with God. Now it's like, God, I was thinking about doing that too. You think that? Oh, you think I should do that too? Great. Ain't going to start off like that. But over time, walking with him, being transformed by the means of grace that he gives to us, the things that you pray for will actually be the things that God already wants to do. But between then and now, you've got to say, God, here it is. Even being honest to the point of God, here's what I really want to do. I done rationalized with the people. I done made this decision sound super spiritual. But God, I don't know if that's really true or not. I just, I just know I want to do this thing. Commitment, everything you do to the Lord doesn't mean, God, I'm going to decide what to do and I need your stamp of approval on it. It means, God, I have not decided what to do here. Humility. Verse 7. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Ooh, this is a hard one here. I'm going to be honest, this is one of the hard ones for me. Because I got good ideas and I feel like God don't give him a chance. 
I'd be like, God, let's just try my way first. You know what I'm saying? Like, if it doesn't work, we'll do it your way. Because God's way always seems to take just a little bit longer than I want it to. Don't it? Like, I may want to do the same thing God wants to do. I just want to do it faster. Like, come on, God, we, let's go. But to be still in the presence of the Lord, to rethink what you think about humility and understand that if you think of yourself rightly before God, how dare we act before his spirit moves? What do we think that we know that God doesn't know? What need do we have that we don't, God is not going to meet? So being still in the presence of the Lord and waiting patiently for God to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from rage. Here's where we get back to the heart of what it means to be meek or humble. To be meek or humble isn't a personality trait. It isn't lowering your voice and talking softly. It isn't speaking the truth or not speaking the truth. What being humble really is, is looking at your life, picking yourself up, putting it on the outside and putting God right there in the middle. And it says, God, everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I desire, I will use for the good of others and for your glory. Humility doesn't look like humility oftentimes. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like God trumping what you wanted to do. But there's something about that that puts us in a posture to inherit everything. Y'all, I got I to gotta talk practically for just a second. I'm going to wrap up here soon. There are some believers out there today that are saying that being nice and gentle and kind isn't working. We're losing our schools. We're losing our country. We're losing the legislative agenda. We need to do what works. Tim Keller was talking about how to be winsome in public and how to speak the truth in love. And folks who read that called it a loser theology. Here's the reality, y'all. It might be. God ain't never tell us to win, y'all. We're never commanded to be successful. We're never commanded to have Christianity be the law of the land. We're commanded to be gentle, y'all. And you may think that's a lesser command than the other commands, but I promise you it is not because Jesus himself in Matthew 11 says, come to me all you are heavy laden and burdened. Take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and I will give you rest. I wonder why Jesus didn't come back with thunder and lightning. Why was you born in a manger, cuz? Like, like, we could have just solved all of this if you would have just come back, put the neon sign above it, says, hey, the king is here. There'd be no doubt. You wouldn't have to die. You wouldn't have to die. Yeah, if they knew who Jesus was, they wouldn't have killed him. But if he didn't die, we're not here. 
Y'all, Jesus was born in a manger because he was then and still is now someone who must be sought after, not compelled to love. There's a, a law being debated right now in the state of Texas, SB 1515, if you want to look it up. It's a statute that requires the Ten Commandments to be publicly displayed in every public high school or in every public school. There are some who believe this to be a win for religious liberty, a win for the American church. It is not, y'all. It is not. It's using the power of the state to compel a Christian act. You see, I said earlier that the title of our time today was the power of the blood. And I'm going to pack that in a second. But some people have stopped believing in the power of the blood and they only believe in the power of the ballot box. They only believe in the power of political coalitions and machinations to subvert the will of people to do what they believe God wants to do. But true humility says, no, we will be still in the presence of the Lord and wait. As we're being thrown in the fiery furnace, we wait. As we're being thrown in the lion's den, we wait. Because we will not act before the Lord acts because he's king and I'm not. And that's what humility means. Family, it doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth. Galatians 6 talks about confronting a brother or sister who's in sin. But if you read the rest of the verse, it says do it gently and humbly. James chapter 1 uses the same word humility, saying that we should be slow to speak and quick to hear. Be gentle with others. I get that it may not be the most effective way to navigate the world, but it's what God calls us to do. It's to live as peacemakers. And the way the peacemakers live is through gentleness. The power of the blood, y'all. Turn over really quickly to Revelation chapter 6. I want you to actually see this. The power of the blood is what I wanted to tag our time together with. And you may have immediately thought the power of the blood of Jesus. And you should, amen, right? Good shout music right there. The power of the blood of Jesus is why we are here. The power of the blood of Jesus makes us whiter than snow. It redeems us. It restores us. It gives us hope. It's the reason why we can trust the Bible. It's the reason that we can have an eternal hope is because of the shed blood of Jesus. But do you know that that is not the only blood mentioned in the Bible? Revelation chapter 6, start at verse 9. It says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white rule was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer, listen, until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. I heard a Christian nationalist pastor guy on TV talking about that we can actually speed up Jesus coming back if we could just make America Christian again. Right. And that was his rationale for violating all the beatitudes and being uh, trusting in the power of the ballot box instead of the blood. And he really believed it. And people were cheering and clapping. 
the martyrs in heaven asked Jesus, how long, God, until you come back? And the answer from the throne was, not enough blood has been shed yet. Oh, y'all don't hear me today. Not enough blood has been shed yet. Not enough Christians have laid down their lives yet. And that may come here for us in reality, but surely it comes day by day in principle. Us laying down our lives for the good of other people. Not defending our rights, but protecting others. Not insisting upon our own way, but making sure that people see the character of Jesus. Not just know the story of Jesus through our lives. How long, O oh Lord, until the full measure of those who are to be martyred for Jesus have gone? Y'all, this self-sacrificing lifestyle is what is both our example through Jesus and our mandate as Christians. Let me close with a story. Um, I have a family member who's younger than me, about 10, 15 years. Um, and I grew up with him, was there when he was born. He spent lots of time in my house. We had a really good relationship. I was big Uncle Philip for him. And um, I remember like, several years ago, he came out to me and told me that he was gay. And it wasn't what he said that I remember most clearly. It's how he said it. He came to me, and I mind you, I, I love this dude. And I thought this dude loved me, and he does. But as he was telling me that he has these attractions and desires, he was like visibly shaking. He was terrified of having this conversation. And the reason he was terrified is because in that moment, I wasn't just his uncle, I was a Christian. And he had been taught early on to be afraid of Christians. Not through propaganda, it was well earned. And in that moment of seeing his response to me, someone that we have genuine love for, I realized he's afraid that I'm not going to love him no more after this. He's afraid that I'm going to treat him the way that other Christians have treated him. And so he told me, and afterwards I just gave him a big hug, just held him. You know, you hug, you hug man, you like hold it too long, like it's, it's almost awkward. Like you got to hold him, like I held him that long, like it was awkward. Because I wanted him to know. Like, he knew I disagreed. That's why he was afraid to tell me. What he was unsure of was would I love him. Family, we have got to find a way to disagree with people and still love them. And be gentle towards them. Like, that's how we win, y'all. That's how we inherit the earth. You want to win? Love other people that you disagree with. And make sure that they know that you love them. Because how you feel don't matter. Do they feel that you love them? That's how Christians win, y'all. That's how the church wins. It's not insisting upon our way, but through humility and gentleness and patience, speak the truth, but do it in such a way that people are totally convinced that you still love them and you're still there for them. That's how we win. That's how we inherit the earth. That's how God gives us all that he's promised us. May cost us a fiery furnace. May cost us Daniel in the lion's den. May cost us everything. It may require our blood in reality or our sacrifice in principle. But through that, 
people will see the character and nature of God in a way that our comfort and our success could never show. The world will see a God who loves through our sacrifice and our gentleness in a way that our big buildings and high liturgy could never show. And that's why he's calling us to this kingdom reorientation of the meek shall inherit the earth and blessed are those who lay their lives down for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, oh God, we need your help. I need your help. God, these are hard words for me. I got a bunch of good ideas that are all quicker than yours, all seem to be more effective than yours, God. And yet you did not call us to win. You didn't call us to be successful. You didn't call us to protect Christianity. You called us to be gentle. So God, I pray that you would help embed this in our hearts. That it wouldn't just be a hallmark card Christian platitude, but it would be a driving reality of our lives. That we are people who love well. Even those whom we disagree with. And would you be glorified because of our words, as Matthew 5, 16 says. Oh God, we love you. Help us to love you and others more. The power of the blood shed for us allows us to shed for others. Help us to embrace that as a good thing, as a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website.